Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name's Justin. And I'm Alec. And this is a very special week for Fly on the Wall. It's actually one year since we released our first episode. Um, February 24th, just yesterday, was our birthday. Um, so happy birthday to Fly on the Wall. And I do want to take just a minute before we really get into it, this episode, um, to thank all of you, uh, especially our listeners, um, who have stuck through us and been loyal throughout the past year, whether you joined us on that very first February 24th with you know, former White House comms director Jen Psaki, um, or any of the episodes in between. We're really, really grateful for your support, your listenership, um, and this would not be a success without you all. It's just been such a fun ride, and I'm so glad. Um, I actually came on a little bit late last March uh, when Aaron, Christian, and Justin decided they needed and wanted a little more help on the podcast. I came on. It's been a great experience, so uh, glad we've had the opportunity, and thanks again to all of you for bearing with us throughout it. Um, if you don't Already follow us on social media as always at Fly on the Wall Pod um, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, things like that. Uh, if you are on campus this week, check out Salinger Lounge. We have the big chalkboard there um, promoting Fly on the Wall, so that's a big thing for us as well. Um, and of course, our guest this week on the podcast is Kaylee McEnany, spokes the spokeswoman, excuse me, for the RNC, um, and actually a 2010 graduate of the SFS. All right, and with that, let's move in to our segment wheel for this week. So can we spin the wheel? And our first segment is going to be, Who Said That?, where Justin is going to try to guess a quote, and I'm not because I found this quote, so I already know the answer. Um, but since President's Day was last Monday, uh, we have a quote from a former president, which is, No man ever listened himself out of a job. So it's basically that president saying, Shut your trap and listen once in a while. No man ever listened himself out of a job. That's a tough one. I'm going to go with FDR, though. So you kind of swung for the fences. I think you should have been bunting here. Mm. Um, Interesting. The, I don't know where this is going. The answer was Calvin Coolidge. Oh. Mm. So okay. that was a bit of an obscure one. Through it was not my yeah. first, second, third, or maybe 16th guess. But yeah, <laughs> sure. Calvin Coolidge. Let's go for it. Um, all right. Segment wheel. One more time. All right, and we have Did You See That? Uh, this week's Did You See That is for the first day of spring training. Each MLB team replaced their normal caps um, with the caps of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School baseball team, um, which is a really nice gesture for opening week this week. Yeah, beautiful gesture after the obviously tragic events in uh, Parkland, Florida last week, and for all the teams that, you know, half the MLB teams play spring training uh, in Florida. So uh, a nice gesture to the local to the local community there. Um and also exciting that it's baseball season. It sounds like the you know it's about to be spring here in D.C. We'll be getting the cherry blossoms pretty soon. Uh, it's a good time of year. Absolutely. Um, so we have a quick update for you on our political picks. Um, like we've mentioned in the last couple weeks, political picks is the new thing we're doing this season um, where all of your team members here at Fly on the Wall um, choose a guest's answer to one of our questions. Um, it's usually a fun one during our lightning round, and then um, we score ourselves based on who got it right. Um, our update, if I'm not mistaken, is Abby has won and no one else has any points because apparently we don't know our guests well enough. This is like harder than I thought it was going to be. Right, I'm like, okay, this will be great. Segment. Yeah. Um, I think we need to start asking more like yes or no questions for this. Yeah. We'll see. So this week's question that we're going to ask Kaylee um, is going to be, what was your favorite core class that you took at Georgetown? Uh, obviously, she made it through the SFS. She had to take a lot of core classes. Lots, trust me. So stick around to the lightning round to find out what she says. 
Um, and with that, we are so excited to welcome Kaylee McInerney on the pod this week. Um, like we said before, she is spokeswoman for the RNC. Um, you probably know her from her um, time on CNN um, during the 2016 election. She was on almost all of their panels on election nights um, throughout the primary and the general. Um, someone who uh, actually just wrote a book as well, which she was here on campus a couple weeks ago to talk about uh, about her journey around across the country just after the 2016 election to speak to um, how she described the silent majority. Um, and we are really excited to have her on the pod. So let's welcome in Kaylee. Kaylee Magnani, thank you so much for joining us here on Flying the Wall, and welcome back to campus. You are an alum of the SFS, correct? That's right. It's been a long time since I've been back, but what an honor. So happy to be here in Healy, where I took, I think, my last final exam about seven <laughs> years ago. Awesome. We're excited to have you back on campus uh, here at the Institute of Politics to talk about your book um, and here on the pod as well. So we're going to jump right in um, and starting out really where you started out your career, which is an, an internship, as I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to. Um, your actual first job in politics was interning on the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign while you were in high school. Um, so could you tell us a bit about how that experience set you up for your undergrad experience at Georgetown um, and your eventual internship at the White House? Yeah, it set my entire career interning from such a young age. You know, everyone wants free help. And so when you offer your help, it's amazing how many people will take you up on that opportunity. And um, Bush Cheney 04, it was just me in a field office in Tampa, the Hillsborough County Republican headquarters. And it's a lot of being out there with Bush Cheney signs, uh, advocating for the president. But you get a lot of responsibility. These campaign offices, a lot of them are understaffed, especially in the summer before a campaign when it's not quite completely geared up yet. Um, but it set me on my path to then intern for a gubernatorial campaign. And then here on the Hilltop uh, with my great fellow Hoyas, I got to intern for Congressman Adam Putnam on the Hill and then in the Bush Cheney White House. So what was it like? Take us behind the scenes of the White House a little bit. What's it like to intern there? It's incredible. I mean, I remember waking up very early in the morning here because I had to be at the White House at about 6 a.m. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, 6, Even the 7. Even interns had to get up early. Well, I had to get up early because I was the, you, it's a full-time internship, so I had right. to take classes until about 10 p.m. at night here. So I oh, would wow. work from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., rush to class and be in class till about 10. Oh, but I remember being out at uh, the gates right there in front of Healy Hall, mm-hmm. freezing because uh, it's winter time, and waiting for a cab and heading off to the White House, going behind that fence outside the White House and Secret Ser- Service being on the phone with my mom putting her through the, the Secret Service uh, checkpoint and, and walking into the White House and passing people like Dana Perino and passing you know, these top-level Bush officials as a young college student, as a sophomore. It was an incredible opportunity. And what kind of work did you do while you were there? So I was in the White House Office of Media Affairs, and what I had to do was I had to scour 53 newspapers. My region was the Southeast um, for whatever hot-button topic the White House was interested in and write a briefing that went up to the Chief of Staff. So it was real substantive work, uh, incredible opportunities like escorting Eli Manning from, the, I've got to tell this story. Yeah, please do. So you yeah. told us this uh, before we got started, and I, I think our listeners are going to want to hear this one. Yeah, well, they knew that I loved the Mannings, uh, Peyton Manning in particular at the White House, and they said, hey, you know, let's let Kaylee escort Eli. The Giants had won the Super Bowl. That did happen at one point in time. <laughs> and they said, you can escort Eli from the Rose Garden to the Oval Office. And as I was walking, I thought it'd be a good idea to ask him to sign his brother Peyton's jersey. He, oh, no. He was, yeah, he was a bit perplexed, uh, but he signed nonetheless. And it gets worse because I'm standing right outside oh, no. the Oval Office and 
I was like, oh, I want a picture. I know I'm not allowed to take one, but you got to take risks in life. And I, I said, <laughs> there's this old man. Hey, can you take a picture? He looks like a nice old sure. man. Uh, takes the picture, and someone said, do you know what you just did? You asked Tom Coughlin, the coach of the Giants, <laughs> oh. to take your picture. Yeah, so, man, no he was an old man to me, but uh, the coach of the Giants to many others. But you did get your picture. I did. I so guess that's, a, that's an experience you can't get many places. <laughs> that's right. Um, but so then from, from media affairs, you made the maybe logical jump to uh, Fox News. So uh, what made you jump from politics to media like that? Well, you know, politics is an interesting, uh, I don't know what you call it, sport activity game. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of political calculus that goes into decision making. You know, every campaign is and primaries trying to position themselves one place or another place ideologically. But I've always been someone who I just like to speak my mind mm. and I like to say what I believe. And, you know, media gives you that freedom to, you know, you don't feel like you have to say what someone wants to hear. You can say what, what you think and what you believe. And one of the reasons I think Donald Trump was so successful is uh, taking that attribute of what I find in media to politics. But went to Fox News, um, had a great time. I, hanging out, you know, on Sean Hannity's set with all kinds of amazing political figures just day in and day out. You got to talk to some of the brightest minds in the world and to be able to do that on a daily basis and interview them because like you guys conducted a pre-interview with me before right. this, I was conducting pre-interviews with, you know, Senate oh, staffs wow. or in, in some cases, senators, you know, as a producer, you're, you get that kind of opportunity, which is pretty awesome. That's fantastic, um, because obviously when so many people get their news and pay attention to these shows like Huckabee and Hannity, um, and you were actually behind the scenes there. Um, so could you talk a bit about uh, when you discovered your passion for being on air? Yeah, so... Kind of seeing that from the behind the scenes sides, when did you decide to make that jump yourself? Well, I knew I wanted to do it pretty early on. So when I was just a student here at Georgetown, um, I had the opportunity to go on air with Alan Combs, who is a liberal, so different ideologically mm -hmm. than me, but he really gave me um, an opportunity to go on his online show at Fox, and I was just a student here, and I said, sure. So I would hop on the Amtrak train and ride down the, right up the Northeast Corridor and go on and um, get to be at least on Fox's online show and get some clips. And um, I love that. I love debating. I love sparring with you know my left wing counterpart, Alan Combs. And from there, I just kept pushing. And I think one thing I have to say to you know you guys as students is mm -hmm. never feel like you're too young to ask for something. I was young, but we need young people on air. We need millennials on air. We need our voices out there. So never be afraid to ask for what you want to do. You might just get the opportunity if you knock on that door hard enough. Awesome. So then, uh, more recently in the 2016 race, you made the jump to a new network um, over to CNN. Uh, where you were a regular commentator and a surrogate for uh, Trump. Uh, so what was it like making that jump from Fox, which obviously is a conservative-leaning network, to CNN, which is less so? Well, I found that instead of having one sparring partner, I had <laughs> seven or eight. <laughs> um, so you, if you watch the election panels, I was uh, that heavily outnumbered blonde girl um, fighting for Donald Trump at the time against seven folks who heavily disagreed with me. Um, and one of the things you'll find, though, that's interesting is even though we were all angry at one another on air, we're all friends behind the scenes. And it's something that you might not recognize. You see the angry caustic paddles panels, right. but when the lights turn on and, 
everyone walks off the set. Um, most of us are friends, and one of my friends is Van Jones, who, while I was here at you know at Georgetown, he was working in the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and or actually that was after my time here, so just after I had left. And I saw him as this radical left-wing czar. You know, he's a leftist. And when I met him, what I found is there's a a lot more to someone than their political ideology. And for me in particular, one of the things that was said to me by a CNN viewer was to take off my cross because I wasn't deserving of wearing that cross is what the the viewer told me. And Van Jones didn't know about that comment. um, But the first night I met him, I, I was rounding the corner and he shouted out from the green room, among other commentators, I love your cross. My name's Van Jones. And we became good friends. And it's interesting that people have really helped me out in life. Um, a lot of times tend to be the people on the other side of the aisle. So, you know, make connections wherever you can find them and, you know, never judge someone for their political beliefs because they're probably good people deep down, just like Van Jones. Yeah, that's actually a really fascinating story. When you told us that in the pre-interview, um, we were both just fascinated by that. And could you talk a bit more um, about sort of that balance between, you know, going on air more or less against someone like Van Jones because you do just have such differing beliefs, um, but then at the same time, as soon as those cameras are off, like, chatting more or less like your friends. Yeah, for I, a sports terminology, which I'm sure I'll, I'll mess up here, it's <laughs> <laughs> leaving it on the field yeah. and knowing that, hey, we, it's obviously very divided times. Um, people are very entrenched in their political positions and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of division. And just knowing that, you know, leave your politics on the field, fight for what you want to believe as avidly as you want to, as strongly as you want to. That's great. It's what makes our our country awesome. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all Americans. We're all on the same team and you can kind of set that aside. And uh, that's what most commentators, 99% are able to do is separate the sport of political debate from, uh, you know, recognizing someone as a person. Um, so one thing that you've mentioned a lot, especially when you're talking about your book, is uh, about election night. Um, so take us inside the room uh, at CNN a little bit. What was the environment like? Yeah, it's. Uh, I arrived at CNN at around 2 p.m. and uh, the mood can only be described as optimistic, excited, <laughs> uh, cheerful, and an array of food had been ordered. It seemed like there was an impending celebration of sorts. Um, quickly changed. There was a celebration in the green room for a moment because The exit polls came out, and as Jared Kushner told me for my book, the exit polls were brutal. Um, They were tough. Even though the Trump campaign data showed a victory internally, the exit polls showed a a heavy defeat, and that was being celebrated by my Clinton counterparts in CNN's green room. Well, I remember seeing on on CNN that night, there was a Chiron that read, like, um, senior Trump official, it would take a miracle for us to win tonight. Like when the first exit polls were coming out. So interesting so, you bring that up because yeah. that, so I was sitting on set when that came out and Corey Lewandowski and I had cross paths and I said to Corey, is Donald Trump going to be the next president? And he said, we'll know in 20 minutes because he was also waiting on some of that same polling to come out. And as I sat down on the set, I was, he said, I'll text you when, you know, I get more information. Um, I never received a text, so obviously made me a little more nervous. (laughs) Um, And then you mentioned that, and very good memory on your part, that yes, there was a a Trump campaign official, an anonymous source had told CNN it would take a miracle to win. So Mm -hmm. definitely the feeling was he was going to not be victorious at CNN. Jeff Lord and I still believed, but but very few others did. And as Wolf Blitzer called state by state um, for President Trump, Jeff Lord and I would just sit up a little taller and our, <laughs> our, our friends over there, Van Jones and Paul Begala, um, would just sink down a little more realizing what was about to happen. And could you talk a bit more about that? Um, obviously, you're getting news by the second, really. You have no, you don't, like you were saying, you don't have any insider information. You don't have anything 
really any quicker than the viewers do. Um, so how do you kind of build that messaging between you think your candidate's going to lose and are sort of building a, uh, I guess, a message of, you know, we, we fought the good fight, there's still a lot of energy out there, versus then when that flips and it looks like you're going to win, you know, building that, okay, now we're in charge type thing. So I think, you know, it's important to point out that I was always optimistic the president would win. Likewise, Jeff Lord. Likewise, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner mm-hmm. and those within the Trump campaign. And the reason we we knew that he was going to win or we felt it strongly is being out on the campaign trail. Every weekend I'd travel home to Florida and I'd see the undeniable signs, the enthusiasm, anecdotal examples like Trump signs everywhere, not one Clinton sign. And Jeff Lord would see the same in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And as the Trumps traveled the nation, they would see it too. But you had this um, kind of two realities because when you went back to those Manhattan sets, as you mentioned, you know, it was a very different story being told in the mainstream media. So trying to reconcile those feelings um, was difficult, but I was always optimistic. So for me, when I said Donald Trump's going to be victorious, I believed it. So I wasn't selling anything. I was just saying what I knew to be true and what I saw across the country. Yeah. So uh, you talk about your optimism on election day. I'm just curious um, because a lot of the polls uh, were wrong. A lot of the polls indicated that um, Hillary was going to become the next president of the United States. So what was it that gave you uh, such optimism that it would go the other way? So I was convinced that there was a hidden Trump voter. And I distinctly remember Brexit. And I'm, I know you guys know what that is. It's you know obviously the vote to leave the European Union on the part of uh, the UK. They voted to leave. No one saw it coming. Polls said that they wouldn't vote this way. They did because there was the hidden Brexit voter that didn't want to talk to a pollster hung up the phone if they were called. Likewise, I thought there was a hidden Trump voter. And interestingly, Bill Stepien, national field director for the Trump campaign, now White House political director, told me that they asked different questions than the conventional pollsters. Most pollsters would say, did you vote in the Romney election? Okay, great, then Romney Obama, then we're gonna count what you say. And if you didn't vote, then they didn't count your 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 um, basically they didn't count what you were saying in the poll. Bill Stepien would ask some questions like, "Do you think you're going to vote?" Okay, well, do you uh, like the president? Some of what he says, but not all of what he says. And he would count that person that cautiously supported the president in the yes column. And he identified that there were about eight to twelve percent of voters who were hidden Trump voters who wouldn't tell me they they love all of Donald Trump, but would tell me they like part of him. And that's why the Trump campaign saw it coming. And it's it's something I ascribed to and something I believed would happen on election night. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Politico's Israel People is the Marco Rubio Bill Nelson town hall following the shooting in Parkland. Um, I thought it was a Lovely display of bipartisanship, uh, both standing up there on the same stage, taking questions directly from the survivors in the local community. Um, I think that's kind of what a lot of people wish politics was, where you have our elected officials working together regardless of their ideology, their party affiliation, and talking to their constituents um, to find out what matters to them and what they think the consi- what the constituents think they should be doing to advance their interests in Washington. So you did make one more career transition to where you are currently as RNC spokeswoman. Um, So could you talk a bit about um, sort of coming back to that political field, leaving media more or less, 
um, and then starting your time with the RNC. Why did you decide to, to make that jump? Well, I wanted to be in the fight. Um, I wanted to, and of course, I was in the fight at CNN. A lot of fighting went on there. <laughs> but I wanted to... But with a different hat, more or less. Exactly, with a different hat. And this job combines the two things I love the most. I loved politics and, mm-hmm. you know, strategizing and being among allies and talking about, you know, how do we talk about tax cuts and infrastructure and all of these hot-button issues. I love that political planning that goes into a communication strategy, but I also love to debate, and this gives me the luxury of doing both. I'm, every day I'm on Fox News is set, usually MSNBCs, and get to do what I love, um, but I also still now have the political part of it in my life, which is uh, the, really the best of both worlds. Right, and you just graduated Georgetown like eight years ago, so that's a pretty quick rise to being one of the top spokespeople for the RNC and being on these networks all the time. So I guess just, you know, what advice do you have to Georgetown students who uh, could skyrocket up quite that fast. Yeah, intern everywhere you can, every chance you get, every semester, you have an advantage here that very few college students in the nation get. Because when I was in my White House internship, it was people who had to take literal semesters off of school, but I could do it while being in school Mm -hmm. and building those connections. I mean, I still have people that I talk to from the Bush administration that have helped me throughout life. And, you know, now with the Trump administration, making those connections through interning is number one. And number two, taking advantage of those internships. Don't just go and sit at a desk and you know, do what, do only what you're told to do, go ask for things and, you know, say, hey, give me a chance to be on this set. You know, Ainsley Earhart taught me the teleprompter when I was an intern. Teach me how to use the teleprompter and build those relationships. And it comes full circle. You know, I'm sitting here with my book in front of me, Forward by Sean Hannity. Well, uh, 10 years ago, I was <laughs> Sean Hannity's intern. Right. So those connections you make come full circle. Little did I know that internship uh, would forge a connection. And that person I was interning for would one day write the forward to my book less than a decade later. And you know, those connections are everything. That definitely is a fantastic story. Um, so getting just a bit back into the RNC spokeswoman role, um, what's your day-to-day like? Because obviously we see you a lot on TV, but there has to be a lot behind the scenes there as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's di- The most difficult part of my job is this news cycles faster than I think it's ever been. I imagine, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I go to take a bathroom break and there are four new stories that broke. <laughs> so, you know, it's keeping up with the news cycle while being in the news cycle. So today, to give you an example, um, I, my first hit was at 5 a.m. So I was up at 3.30 a.m. Wow. So I was at Fox News for that. I had... Um, three more television hits, and then in between, I think I did something like eight radio spots. So, you know, it's constantly being on air, but at the same time, keeping up with the news cycle and being ready for literally any question that could come your way. Um, So it's my day-to-day is keeping up with the news, um, crafting my talking points, researching, and going out there and litigating the case for the party and the president. And who else has a say in that? Because obviously, you know, as spokesman, you have a lot of liberty in sort of delivering that message. Um, But who else is in the room when that message crafting is happening? Yeah, so we have a communications director. We have a huge, massive team. Um, I would estimate it's just our communications department is about 30. And then we have research on top of that. We have... Uh, we have a war room on top of that. So we have a, a huge, massive department, and it's collaborative, and we're all in the room and kind of have a general theme of what we want the tone to be, and it's obviously always in line with the White House. Mm-hmm. So the RNC is we are an arm of the White House, their political arm, essentially. But um, in terms of what I say, it's it's my own research. You know, I'm fortunate to have a boss that completely trusts me, that watched me for a year and a half uh, fight on CNN, and... So the theme we all come up with and then the research, the points, and how to best litigate the case is left up to me. Great. So uh, as RNC spokeswoman, you've emphasized really having a unified voice and message. 
um, with the administration. So how have you helped to push that message forward? And also, how have you responded with the administration might have um, deviated from the strategy? Well, you know, I support the president, and it's pretty simple. Um, we support the White House. We support the policies. We believe that this is the individual that the American people elected, um, and he's the people's president. And as such, you know, we stand in line with him. We stand in line with his message, and it's pretty simple because I believe this is what the American people want is the presidency we're seeing. So it's an easy job um, for me to stand by the president. Um, so one of the big things that you had to coordinate with the White House on, obviously, was um, the recent tax cut bill. Um, could you talk a bit about how that went, um, how that played out, you know, talking to the Commerce Department of the White House, making sure your messages were similar um, yeah. and getting the timeline right there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the White House, um, we are constantly on the phone with them. We have many points of contact there. Um, I'm often at the White House, I would say, probably anywhere from once to twice a week um, at events that are geared towards major legislative priorities like tax cuts. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting about tax cuts is you really saw a unified communication mm -hmm. strategy and a unified party. And you compare it to Obamacare, repeal and replace efforts, you know, there were several Republican plans that were kind of vying against one another. And there was not really a sanction plan until the end with the Graham-Cassidy plan. So it was much more challenged to have a communication yeah, strategy. Your, yeah. Absolutely, because there are so many vying Republican plans. But with tax cuts, it was great. There's one plan, it was sanctioned, there was a unified communication strategy, and we've literally seen the numbers. This is internal RNC data. And the states that we are performing in in 2018, which we hope to be every state, but in our key races, we have seen a 20% increase in support for tax cuts in our internal data. Wow. And we tie that, one, to a good bill because people are keeping more of their money, but two, to an effective communication strategy Absolutely. that says to someone, you saw your paycheck go up in February, well, that is tied to Trump tax cuts. So it's so important to get the message out there for 2018, and uh, tax cuts is a great example of Republican unity. So obviously you're here at Georgetown tonight mainly to go to an event to promote your book. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that. For one thing, you traveled all around the country during the 2016 election cycle uh, while you were at CNN. Um, how did you do both? How could you balance uh, being a commentator on air and making the time to talk to all the uh, to all these voters? So most of this for my book, I did post-election. You know, I had the plan for it. I, I really wanted to write this. So it was really just the planning stage during the election. And the execution was after the election. So I would say in February after the election, I really started to travel. Um, but that being said, all throughout the election, I was in all these different states. I was in South Carolina for the primary, New Hampshire, uh, to all the different presidential debates in St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, I really got a good read of the nation uh, through my travels for CNN purposes. And then after, um, I was traveling the country to talk to these Americans and find voters and profile them. Could you talk a bit more about that? Um, because I know that's obviously a big part of the theme of your book is talking to those voters, a lot of those hidden voters. Um, what were some of the takeaways that you got talking to all those uh, sorts of people? Well, that there was an uh, immense frustration with government, and it existed on both sides of the aisle, on the left and on the right, and it's something Van Jones and I would often talk about, that there was anger um, against the establishment in both parties, and in the Republican Party, that manifested itself in Donald Trump. Uh, and the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders was really that outsider candidate that that anger was encapsulated in. And traveling the country, you know, I found this to be true. When I went to Indianapolis and sat across from two carrier factory workers, one a Bernie Sanders supporter, one a Donald Trump supporter, 
And they said to me that during their primary, not a single one of their fellow factory workers voted for Hillary Clinton, which is interesting. And they said on election day, during the general election, they were told by leadership to go out and to vote for Hillary Clinton. Some did, but many of them stayed home and some voted for Donald Trump. And it was that key swing vote that I sat across from and had a beer with these factory workers uh, that made this election happen because we know Trump picked up states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, right. Michigan that, that Republicans haven't won since the 80s. Right. So obviously uh, voters, uh, you touched lots of voters, but they weren't the only people you interviewed for your book. Meaning, for example, you got to interview Jared and Ivanka, um, mm-hmm. among others. So take us behind the scenes there a little bit. A, how did you lock down that interview? And B, uh, what are some things that they might have said in the interview that uh, people wouldn't know if they didn't read your book? Yeah, so Jared and Ivanka were very kind enough to give me some interview time uh, along with Laura Trump and Sarah Sanders and Ben, ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, and many others. But um, I think there was a recognition that I was a, a strong proponent for the president. Um, I was someone who uh, you know, really litigated the case for the president, and I was someone who could be a good vehicle um, for talking about election night um, in a way that voters would understand and resonate with. And so that's how... You know, I think people were so willing and open to sharing their version of election night with me because they trusted that I would share the true account of what happened. Um, but I, one interesting thing to me, and this is never before reported detail, is that on election night, Ivanka told me that her father had two speeches planned, an A version and a B version, and one was an acceptance speech and one was resignation speech or concession speech, rather. Um, and he realized he was going to be president. He was very superstitious. People would say, hi, you know, Mr. President. He'd say, don't say that. It's not over till it's over. It's not over till she calls. But uh, he looked up at his screen, and they were huddled in a kitchen in Trump Tower, him and his family and a few others. And he looked up at the TVs, and he saw crying Hillary voters contrasted with the jubilant Trump supporters in red hats shouting USA. And read his acceptance speech. He ripped it up. He said, this hits the establishment, hits the media. It's not the tone I want to strike tonight. I want to speak to their pain, speaking about the Hillary voters. And he's crafted a new speech right then and right there in in that kitchen. Um, So really interesting details when you you get to talk firsthand to some of the people in the room. Yeah. And I'd imagine a good sort of um, way to tie the themes together between all those frustrated people out in the country, no matter really who they voted for, just frustrated at Washington, um, and then being able to have Um, I guess tell the right message to really everyone in the country um, on that special night. Um, So uh, we're starting to wrap up, but one more thing I want to ask about your book. What do you think students and young people interested in politics can learn um, from your book in particular, um, the stories you're able to tell through that? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, to see election night through the eyes of those who were there with the president is really interesting. Um, And then to read what makes this book so different, some of your listeners may know about Hillbilly Elegy with Mm -hmm. J.D. Vance. Uh, It was a profile of a certain type of voter, um, this blue-collar voter. And, you know, for my book, it's really a much broader look at type of voters that determine this election. You know, I go from Flint, Michigan, uh, to a, a man who's poisoned by Flint's water, who didn't vote for anyone because he didn't trust anyone, to um, a wife who lost her husband on a VA list in McAfee, South Carolina, um, a mom who lost her son and husband to terrorism in East France, and really tell the election through their eyes. Um, and it's really interesting to see this intimate profile of the American people. Um, and I think just for your young viewers in particular, I do a whole chapter on academic freedom and my time at Harvard Law School. 
uh, what it was like to be a conservative on campus because it's uh, very, if you're conservative, you understand it can be scary to speak your mind, uh, particularly if you feel peer pressured. And, you know, I talked to a, a young man who was a real hero at Harvard Law School who said he faked his way through school as a liberal and then the very end uh, shared his conservative views in a pretty bold way. So, you know, I think if you're a young conservative on campus, you'll benefit from reading that chapter. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's political fun fact is the only person to serve as chair of the RNC and later become president is George H.W. Bush, which I did not know. So thanks for that fun fact, Alec. Got you, Justin. So we have a few kind of wrap-up segments that we like to do, more or less some fun ones. Um, starting with our hot take. So our hot take, we asked uh, a student here a question. Um, that question is, in the age of social media, how has the role of spokesperson evolved? We asked um, Will Nguyen, who is a sophomore in the SFS, um, and he's the deputy press secretary for GUSA, our student government here on campus. Alex going to play his response, and then you can respond to um, both Will and the question. Okay. I think that with the, with the social media, um, the role of the political spokesperson has, I think, definitely has gotten harder for, in a sense, gotten harder. Um, social media has, like, decreased the reaction time between the political sp- spokesperson and the audience, and the spokesperson has, it's like, now under more pressure to provide deliberate and accurate information just as before. But also, in a sense, um, it has made the spokesperson's job a lot easier. Um, just as the that time that same time um, difference, now it could help the spokesperson um, get a more accurate um, feel of what the audience and what the political climate is, and make it easier and quicker for the political spokesperson to adapt their messaging and the narrative that they want to contribute. Kayla, your response. Yeah, I think that's really well said um, because it does, social media allows you to take a quick pulse and survey of how people feel, how they think on any given political issue, which is valuable and useful to interact with um, your voters in that way. But on top of that, as Will mentioned, you know, it's difficult because you feel an immediacy, an immediate need to respond. You know, in the wake of an election, it used to be, let's say, the Virginia gubernatorial race, right. which we just lost at the Republican Party. Um, it used to be you had time to craft your statement and you put some thought into it and it really doesn't get pick up or traction until the next day. But now, in the world of tweeting, you know, people are looking for your Twitter response. People are looking for your Facebook response. So you have to respond in a very rapid way. Um, and as he mentioned, presenting accurate information that's been fact-checked two or three times, it's important to do so, but you have to respond in a pretty rapid fashion. Great, so now we're moving into our last kind of fun segment, which is the lightning round. So we have a couple questions for you, and just the first quick answer that comes to mind. Um, Favorite core class that you took at Georgetown? Ooh, Map of the Modern World. Oh, that was yeah. Fun. yeah. So we took guesses on that one, and you got that one right, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, was gonna go, I was going to go with Problem of God, but... I didn't uh, take that one. Oh, uh, you go with Biblet? I did. Okay. I went with Biblet. <laughs> okay. um, all right, second lightning round question. Your favorite Major League Baseball player? Oh, Sean Gilmartin. That's a bit of a setup for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for our listeners who don't know, her husband is an MLB player. Good for the context. Cardinals, right? Yes. Um, yep. Great. Uh, so, third lightning round question uh, Most fun segment you've ever done on TV? Oh, wow. 
Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I'm trying to think of something quickly. Oh, well, election night, yeah. right? Can, <laughs> yeah. Night. It's such a special environment, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, nothing like it. And also the debates, that was fun. Yeah, awesome. Well, Kaylee, thank you so much for your time, for stopping by Georgetown for your event and for our podcast. Um, we really enjoyed the conversation on your career, what it's been like, um, both on CNN, um, your time as an intern, um, and then of course, at the RNC as well. Great, well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right, that's our interview with Kaylee McEnany. I learned a lot from it. I thought her perspectives were incredibly interesting, especially as it pertained to her path to the top of the RNC or close to the top of the RNC so quickly and writing her book. Just a fascinating story. Yeah, definitely a story that many of us here at Georgetown um, can relate to someone who, you know, did what we're doing right now not too long ago. Um, you know, pushed for those internships in the really cool places in D.C., like the White House, like the Hill. Um, and was able to really to work her way up, like you were just saying. Um, and awesome, awesome, awesome insights um, that we got from her about her time at CNN um, and transitioning into that really, really difficult role um, as spokeswoman. That sounds like an insane day. I honestly don't think I could do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so as promised, we're going to fill you in here on our political picks. So as you heard, our question was, what was the favorite Georgetown core class that you took? Um, and Kaylee answered, map of the modern world. And the only member of the team to get that one correctly was Kendall. Um, so congrats, Kendall. You now are tied with Abby for the lead at 1-1, and the rest of us uh, are still sitting here at zero. I'm still zero for zero. This is not not great. I really thought I had a good one with uh, political and social thought, but evidently not. Yeah, I went with Problem of God. Turns out she didn't even take that. She we'll took, see. She took Biblet, so. We'll give you an update next week. Uh, we really hope you enjoy our interview with Kaylee. We will be back next week, as always, with a really exciting episode, actually, so stay tuned for that. Otherwise, check us out on social media. Let us know your thoughts on this week's episode, on our year uh, in review as Fly on the Wall. Um, we always love hearing from you, all of our listeners. Other than that, have a great week, guys.